This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning and welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Goodwill, nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today my guest is Dr. Carl Mangum, who is also a nurse practitioner at UMMC. But he wears lots of other hats as well. He's a volunteer fireman. He's also in charge of one of our federal disaster medical assistance teams. So he has a wealth of knowledge about um, being a first responder and what that means and how we, as people that are not trained in the medical field, can assist folks when an emergency arises. And so we're going to talk about that today. And if you want to join in, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Good morning, Dr. Mangum. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. And I mentioned you're a nurse practitioner, so I want to take the moment and mention uh, that it's Nurse Practitioners Week. So happy Nurse Practitioner Week to you. And same to you and all of our colleagues. That's right. So everybody uh, who's listening out there, if you know a nurse practitioner, give them a, a shout out today and let them know that you uh, appreciate them because we all uh, all part of the healthcare team together. So uh, tell me what a first responder is. What does that actually mean to be a first responder? Well, the title first responder has different meanings in different areas of the country. Um, Basically, around here in the South, um, there is a title of first responder, a course that you can take. Uh, Most people in the volunteer fire service or uh, some reserve police services, um, if they're not already an EMT basic or an EMT paramedic or another healthcare professional, such as an RN, LPN, uh, nurse practitioner, uh, what have you, uh, they can take this course. It's usually taught by a paramedic, and it gives them some very basic first aid type things that they may need on a scene or in just in daily life. Um, so uh, also the term first responder refers to firefighters, police, EMS. The, usually they're the people that are first on the scene when help has been called for. Uh, so there's a couple of different designations. One kind of has a little extra training mm-hmm. first aid with it. But overall, a first responder are the people that have a job or duty to respond uh, initially to an event. And that that's great, and that's one thing, but sometimes emergencies happen at your own house, especially with me and bringing up two little boys. They are, uh, you know, all time trying to actively cut something off of the other one or set the house on fire or all types of those things. I completely understand. Yeah. I have uh, three grown sons and seven grandsons. So I know. I, all boys over there. I have a lot of experience. Yeah. So there are some things that we can do if, you know, an emergency happens when we're the first person there. Um, you know, you mentioned a duty to respond, and you certainly don't, if you're not a healthcare provider or certified as one of these first responders, you don't have to respond. But um, it would be nice if you felt led to uh, respond in an, uh, in an emergency situation. So the first one that I want to talk about is um, kind of a witnessed collapse, because that happened, that's happened to me before. Um, I was in a restaurant, actually, and there was a... Um, guy sitting on a bar stool and he just 
stopped sitting on the bar stool and laid down on the floor, uh, you know, and that was uh, a witnessed collapse. So I actually saw him go from consciousness to unconsciousness. That would be different than just coming up on somebody and finding them unconscious on the ground. But what are some of those causes of, un- of uh, collapse like that? Usually it depends on the age of the individual. If we're looking at infants and children, usually it's a respiratory issue of some type. Um, It can be other things, but usually we look for the respiratory stuff first. For adults, usually it's a cardiac event um, that causes them to collapse. Uh, Other things, simple as fainting, um, intoxicated, drug overdose, drug use. That was this gentleman's Um, uh, problem. um, And um, in the the psychiatric mental health world, um, when we're talking with with, uh, clients, uh, we always have to rule out that drug alcohol thing first mm-hmm. and any, of course, any other medical issues that, that come along. But uh, drug alcohol does account for a certain number of them, that is for sure. Um, the main thing you want to do is just a quick assessment. Are they breathing? If they're not breathing, someone definitely needs to call 911 and get a, additional help on the way mm-hmm. um, and start CPR if, if you have a trained CPR person there. Um, uh, but those are some of the things that you want to look at. A, again, uh, are they awake, alert? Um, are they breathing? Those are always the first two things you're looking for. Yeah, and so awake and alert, you know, you can just kind of shake them on the yeah, shoulder. Hey, 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 are, hey you are you okay? You okay? That's, you know, right. that's what they show us in the videos as well. Right. But it's really what we do. Hey, hey, are you okay? And if they're not able to respond to that, then, of course, we start the process of looking at are they breathing? Do they have a, a pulse? That kind of stuff. But if you're ever unsure... Just go ahead and call 911. Exactly. You know, don't spend an extreme amount of time looking for that uh, pulse before you call 911. Just go ahead and, and do that because when you're hopped up on adrenaline, which a lot of folks are when they've, you know, witnessed an emergency like that, you often will not feel a pulse because all you feel and hear is your own heartbeat right. just pounding because you're so and, keyed and, up. And time goes really slow. And what you think is taking 30 minutes to get first responders there has really only been five to seven. Right. And it just seems like forever. Even as a first responder uh, volunteer on the field um, out on a call, uh, it seems like it takes forever for additional help to get there, but I know it's just mere minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that um, that I want to make sure everyone understands. If you're the person responding or trying to help someone, you have to remain calm. It's very important that you do that. Yeah, that's what we tell our nursing students as well. I'm like, inside, a little tiny spark of you can be freaking out just a little right. bit, but the majority of you has got to remain calm and in control. Right. So we've got a call in Meridian. We're going to talk to Eddie this morning. Good morning, Eddie. Hello there. Uh, I've got a question about bottled oxygen. Okay. I have a problem of uh, breathing just because of overweight and had heart surgery, and I guess I have uh, what you call arteriosclerosis, arteriosclerosis. Uh, something like mm-hmm. that. I can't walk but a little ways without uh, 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 heavy, you know, gasping for air, and I have to stop. Uh I've seen ads on the internet for something called Boost Oxygen in a can, a little small portable can uh, that's uh, and it's got like a mask on the plastic mask on the top of it, and it says it gives you a whiff, so many shots of ninety five percent oxygen, uh, and I, I kind of think maybe that's something I could uh, use to just get going again. Uh, what's your thoughts on this? Have you had experience with this type of product? 
I've personally not had experience. I've heard of it. Um, but w- the the advice I would give to you is definitely talk to your health care provider. Mm-hmm. If you're having issues and need oxygen, there, there are certain approved ways that we can go through and get you that oxygen that you need. Uh, I would be very careful about using anything that we've seen an ad for. Um, they don't always work as, as we think they should anyway. Uh, so I would definitely recommend that you sp- speak with your health care provider and um, go from there. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying about that, and I understand this. It can be kind of uh, tricky. You have to have a <clears> – <throat> how do you get diagnosed? Do I mean, uh, if I just tell the doctor, hey, I, I can't walk for a little ways without running out of breath, will he give me a prescription for some kind of portable oxygen? Uh, well, what I'm we would cra- need – I'm not crazy about carrying – you know, carrying a, a tank right. on a cart or right. something like that. Well, what would need to happen first is to find out exactly what is the cause of the shortness of breath. Because I know you mentioned you were a little overweight, which can certainly do it, but that there are other things as well. If our heart is not pumping as well, um, that will make us shorter breath. With, heart issues, yeah, uh, I believe. With activity. And then if there's some lung pathology as well, like uh, COPD or something like that. Um, so what they would probably do is start with a chest X-ray and some blood work, uh, probably an EKG, and look and see, you know, what's kind of going on from a heart and lung standpoint. And then probably something called pulmonary function tests, which actually tell us how much air your lungs are able to hold. And uh, well, You know, I, I took one of those tests because I was uh, curious about that, and uh, I was fine. I got on the machine with the hose. and. Uh-huh. How long ago was that? That was okay, and I don't have COPD. Like I said, I'm, I know it's it's, it's heart issue related, and my you know uh, somehow or another you know I, mm-hmm. I it's like you say I, my heart can't pump enough. Right. Uh, uh it can um, my SO two S two O is is fine, but I can't when I exercise even a little bit not exercise but just even walking. I guess my heart can't pump enough. Uh, well, it, the heart just doesn't pump enough to the lungs. That, that sound about right? It can. There's something called um, congestive heart failure, which, of course, I'm not saying that's what you have, but that would be one thing that we would look at probably with an ultrasound of your heart to see how much the heart is able to pump at a time. Um, those would be all the kind of starting places we would go. And then if, um, you know, depending on what those showed, then oxygen may or may not be prescribed. And I know you mentioned not wanting to pull around a cart. Well, there's lots of um, newer devices out there that are almost like a backpack um, or across the body um, shoulder bag something like that so you're not really dragging that big tank around anymore so there are some uh, better options out there but you know I would not recommend just purchasing you know a canister of oxygen to use because if we don't know um, what disorder we're actually treating oxygen can be harmful in some uh, cases depending on the amount of oxygen that 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 would deliver so I hope that helps you out a little bit there and if you need more information uh, please give me an email at fit at mpbonline.org And we're talking first aid and first response today on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. And if you want to give us a call, our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. And my guest is Dr. Carl Mangum, and we've been talking a little bit about what to do if you witness someone who um, has passed out or um, has lost consciousness. And we want to talk about some of those other causes of that, like heart attacks and strokes, when we come back from our break. Please give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, here with my guest, Dr. Carl Mangum, and we're talking all about emergencies and first aid today. If you have a question about any of those types of emergencies or what you could do to help another person in an emergency, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 or you can email me at fit at mpbonline.org. All right, Dr. Mangum, we've been talking about um, some kind of witnessed collapse and how to just activate emergency response, call 911 for that. But some of the causes of that are cardiac in nature, so are heart-related in nature. Heart disease is the number one killer in Mississippi. So, you know, we're always looking out for heart attacks and strokes uh, and the signs and symptoms that go along with that. So let's talk about a heart attack. What does that look like? Well, heart attacks look different in different people. Um, the classic, what we would call a textbook heart attack. Like you see on TV. Exactly, or, <laughs> or the movies. Um, would be um, pain in the chest. Um, they always say it feels like a weight's on me. You may hear them, someone say an elephant sitting mm-hmm. on my chest. And it feels like pressure. Uh, they also may uh, talk about pain radiating down their left arm. Uh, some people refer to pain radiating up their neck and into their jaw. Um, it just depends. Um, some of the um, research shows that um, the elderly ladies tend to may have the quieter type of mm-hmm. heart attacks with little or no pain uh, that go on, mainly, mainly just some chest discomfort um, is how they say. And they don't have the classic symptoms. So anytime someone uh, becomes short of breath, complaining of pain, um, and um, just doesn't look right, as mm-hmm. the, as the uh, as my mama used to say, you right. just don't look you just right. Just don't look right. And uh, you know, go ahead and activate nine one one and get help on the way, like we've talked about. And it's not worth taking the chance. If it turns out it's you know. Uh, anything else that's okay mm-hmm. uh, because um, it's still the number one killer, the number one thing we look at, and um, that's the best advice. Yeah. And for you mentioned that women's symptoms are often different, and they are. Um, sometimes they're not even perceived as chest-related pain at all. It's abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, back pain, shoulder pain, those types of things. So all of that should be taken very, very seriously. Um, you may often see them also sweating. We call that diaphoresis in fancy medical words, but really it's just that their skin is kind of clammy and, and sweaty from that. But, you know, if your loved one is exhibiting signs of a heart attack, are there things that you can do while you're waiting on EMS to get there? Yeah, uh, things like uh, try to keep them calm. And you, again, you remain calm, have them sit down um, and, um, you know, even lay down if, mm-hmm. if need be. Um, what we used to say in emergency medical things would be Mona greets all of those patients, and those would be things like morphine and aspirin and, and, and things like that. So um, there's still a recommendation out there that if someone thinks they're having a heart attack, get an aspirin on board, mm-hmm. um, and that just helps the blood keep it, thins it out yeah. just a little bit more uh, to help keep it circulating. 
Um, and so those are the types of things. The main thing is to get emergency help on the way quickly uh, because these things can go um, from bad to worse mm-hmm. in a very short period of time. Yeah. And when you're talking about aspirin, of course, you want to make sure they're not allergic to aspirin or NSAIDs before you would do that. And then it's a it's a grown-up aspirin, so it's sure. not the baby aspirin that we normally take for um prevention of heart attacks and we'll talk about that in just a second that's an 81 milligram aspirin but we're talking about an actual full strength adult aspirin which is 325 uh, would be the appropriate amount of aspirin to do do for that in that case so i said um prevention right because if we're going to talk about heart attacks and what to do when someone's having them we need to talk about what to do to prevent them to start with and so a lot of that we already cover on this show working on our diet, working on our physical activity level. But some things, other things we need to talk about is is monitoring our blood pressure and making sure that it's within a normal range. And if it's not, getting appropriate treatment for that. The other is maximizing our cholesterol control, mm-hmm. um, uh, whether that's through diet, exercise, or medication, or combination of all three. And then blood sugar as well, making sure we get our blood sugar down um, into a normal, healthy pattern as well. You know, I like to say that when your sugar's and the sugar's floating through your bloodstreams, it almost makes little potholes in your your blood vessels. And then when your cholesterol is high as well, it kind of stops up in those potholes, Mm -hmm. and then that makes a clot, and then we have decreased blood flow to our heart, and we can have a heart attack. And if that clot dislodges and goes somewhere, then uh, a stroke as well with that, or if it clogs up the arteries, feeding the neck, all of those things. So, um, Really, it does come back down, and and I know you preach that on this show (laughs) and and other things, that that diet exercise and the blood sugar as the the third element of Mm -hmm. that. And it's so easy for us as providers to say, hey, you need to lose some weight. You need to start exercising. On the other side of it, though, as a person that has to diet and exercise and keep their blood sugar low, um, you know, really, we need to find a motivating factor for most of us to get us to want to do that. Mm -hmm. And as humans, if you don't have a reason to want to do it, um, it's very difficult. It's to even do. different, difficult when you have that that <laughs> it, reason. Exactly because yeah. you're like, oh, it's five thirty, and I have to go to the gym or right. out for my daily walk. Or man, that hamburger really looks mm-hmm. good instead of some grilled chicken or right. fish. Right. And so it, it's just one of those things that um, you know, find something in your life worth doing that for mm-hmm. and work towards that. And give yourself a break a little bit, you sure. know, uh, sure. behavior change like that and, you know, totally rehauling your diet and, right. and your lifestyle pattern. You're going to make boo-boos in that. I right. mean, you're going to, it's okay. To you're going to eat that of, hamburger. Right. You and, know. and it's okay to get that scoop of ice cream. Just don't eat the whole quart. Right. And don't Just, do it every day, right. you know? Right. So that's one thing that I see in the patients that I see, uh, for lifestyle, uh, management is that, they kind of see uh, a slip up like that as a failure, and we kind of go go off the wagon there. And, and the other thing is having that uh, regular routine intervention or appointment with your healthcare provider that you have someone that you know and trust that you're working with, and that can follow up on these things and, and give you. Um, give you kind of that roadmap of where you individually need to go because things that I would need to do would be different than things that you would need to do based on our on our health right and so a lot of the things that we've talked about with heart attack also go into stroke but the signs and symptoms of a stroke 
are different. Right. What are some of those signs and symptoms that you could be looking for in someone to say, hey, maybe they're having a stroke? Right. With strokes, uh, of course, the classic is the weakness, usually on one side. Um, not everyone has the facial droop initially. They'll just know something's a little different. Um, they'll feel funny. Um, um, I'll share a short story with you uh, of okay. my experience. <laughs> um, back several years ago, I was actually out of town. One of my um, uh, sons was graduating from boot camp in in the military, and um I started feeling funny that day and it just just didn't feel right. I started slurring my words mm. and I could see one side of my face was actually starting to, to droop. Um, and so I went to the local um, medical center. It was a university medical center like, like we work at. And uh, the chief of neurology thought I was having a stroke. Mm-hmm. And the one-sided weakness, uh, slurring of words, uh, headache, uh, very common textbook signs uh, I was having. But uh, th- thankfully, it turned out to be a Bell's palsy uh, type thing, and I was able to recover from it. Now, again, not everyone recovers from a, a Bell's palsy, but I was uh, mm-hmm. able to do that. Very fortunate um, that that happened. But those those classic symptoms look the same and feel the same initially um, and and if they're awake and alert and that's the thing about strokes is it depend it's definitely dependent on the exact area of the brain that it affects uh, because it's going to look different in different people depending mm-hmm. on that area and it's going to look different <clears throat> excuse me there's there's really two types of strokes there's the clot kind which we call a thrombotic stroke and then there's the hemorrhagic i mean the bleeding stroke and you know by and large the vast majority of the ones that you're going to see are going to be the clot kind the most deadly are going to be the bleeding kind and you know so that's why when we have folks who have dangerously high blood pressure as we say we're worried about them having a stroke because that pressure is so high in their head Um, and so the symptoms of that usually are going to be more uh, visual changes headache nausea vomiting worst headache of my life type um, signs and symptoms with that Whereas the clot one is cutting blood supply off to the brain. So you get things like the weakness, the facial drooping, the slurring. Um, Sometimes it's just confusion. Like they're just a mental status change, especially if someone is not normally um, up and about and walking around. It may be more difficult to tell that they're weaker on that side. Many many family and friends will say something just seems different Mm -hmm. about them. And that's. Um, and I can't stress that enough when you have a, a family or, or a friend and, and you see they're physically acting different, mentally acting different, way out of what they normally do, they're, and they're not playing with you. Right. Um, you know, you, you need to investigate that and, you know, uh, maybe get additional help or get them to a hospital or call their physician or a health care provider and say, hey, so-and-so is acting different. This is not how they normally mm-hmm. act. And as the first responder, that's usually one of the first questions we ask if a family member or a friend is there. Is this how this person normally acts? And many, many times they say, no, mm-hmm. this is way not how they act at all. And so that's that's one of those common questions we need to ask. And time is of the essence when we're talking about a stroke. Time We've got is a, everything. a very, very limited amount of time to get that person to uh, a hospital and be able to get medication on board that will help kind of dissolve right. that clot. And, right. And we talk about the function. golden hour um, that's still out in emergency medicine, uh, emergency medicine and emergency response. We really look to that golden hour to get that person to definitive medical care so those things 
things can happen. But even the hour sometimes is is uh, not long enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, if the quicker, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just go ahead. And, you know, we had a very similar thing with that. You were in clinic with me one day, and I had a patient that just didn't didn't look right to me. And I had never seen this patient before, and he did not have family with him. He just had a caregiver with him. And, you know, I stuck my head out and said, Carl, come on down here. And you came down and looked at him, too. And you had that gut feeling that something wasn't right as well. And ultimately, that even though it was not a family member, it was a, a caregiver, they were able to say, well, this is not how he normally right. is acting. And so we went ahead and called 911 and had him transported uh, to the ER for evaluation. Turned out to be okay, but still erred on the side of caution and had right. that evaluated. So it's, You yeah. talked about gut feeling, and I yeah. just wanted to mention that. Um, gut feeling, I'm a big believer in mm-hmm. that. And if you have a family member or a close friend that you're with and you have that gut feeling something's wrong, I always tell everybody, go with that gut feeling because um, – I believe the good Lord gives us that ability to say, hey, something's wrong and you need to do something right now about it. Right. Yeah. And nursing school, we call it nurse gut, but everybody's got it. Um, You just got to learn to to listen to it a little bit when something's telling you something's just not right and go ahead and act on that. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about how to take care of someone that might be having a seizure or someone who's choking. If you want to join in our conversation or have any questions about how to uh, provide first First aid in any situation, please give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464 or send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. We'll be back after the break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell. My guest today is Dr. Carl Mangum. We're talking about first aid and response today, and so far we've talked about heart attacks and strokes and uh, witnessed collapse and what to do in those instances, and we're going to pick up and talk about um, what to do if you come upon someone having a seizure. And if you have any questions about first aid or how to lend aid uh, in an emergency, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So seizures. Seizures are an incredibly common um, medical condition. And, of course, we know how to respond to them in the hospital setting, but people don't wait till they're in the hospital to have uh, a seizure. And lots of there are lots of different kinds of seizures, first of all. There's the kinds um, where you stare off. There's kinds that are lip smacking or smelling certain things. There are kinds where just part of the body will shake and tremor. And then there's, again, that movie-type uh, seizure that you see where um, – there's actually full body kind of tightening of the muscles and then rapid um, jerking with that. Um, 
which is called a generalized seizure. We used to call them grand mal seizures. You may have heard that term before. But regardless... Even um, before that, we call them tonic-clonic. Tonic-clonic, right? So uh, regardless of the type, if a person's losing consciousness during uh, a seizure, there's kind of standard stuff that should always uh, be done. And the first one is don't freak out. That, you know, that is the first rule of that. What are some other things that we can do if someone is having a seizure? Well, you're exactly right. Uh, seizures are more common than what uh, most people uh, know. I know in the emergency response world, uh, we have a, a lot more calls for seizures than many of the other things, typically even probably than house fires. Uh, we have more calls for help for that. Um, some of the things you need to think about first, call 911 and get some help on the way. Always first. You want to check their breathing. Are they breathing? Um most people having a seizure do not stop breathing, but they may have a period of difficulty breathing. Um, so that's always your first thing. Um, the other things you need to think about is safety of their head. Were they in the standing position? Were they in the sitting position? Uh, do you want to protect the head? You don't want a closed head injury due uh, to a fall or from the seizure with them striking the ground, concrete, mm-hmm. asphalt, whatever, uh, the floor. Um, so something soft underneath their head, um, a jacket, a shirt, anything that can give a little cover uh, to them. Um, you do not want to hold them down. If they're having a seizure, allow the seizure to happen. Um, the, some of the seizures can be so strong that it'll actually break bones. So if you're holding them or trying to hold them down, that will increase the chance of that happening uh, a, a lot. So we don't want to do that. Uh, never stick anything in their mouth. Ever. Okay, ever. Ever. Uh, I remember, um, and this is, I want to say relatively new, uh, but about 20 years or so we've been saying now, don't stick anything mm-hmm. in their mouth. Um, the the jaw acts like a hydraulic lift, and it can cl- clamp down on whatever's there so if you stick something in there including your finger and there have been reports in the past where fingers have actually been bitten off because of of the strength of the of the seizure in that jaw so never stick anything because then you have a chance of blocking their airway so now you have someone having a seizure and a blocked airway and you don't want to do that so um they're not going to swallow their tongue um if if you don't believe me on that uh go to the mirror and uh, look, try to swallow your tongue. No, and, don't and, tell and people ra- that. Raise up your tongue, and you'll <laughs> see that it's connected to the bottom of your mouth. Uh, what it does is the tongue just falls over the airway, and that's where all those times where we say they're going to swallow their tongue, they're not actually mm-hmm. swallowing their tongue. It's just covering their airway. Mm-hmm. So if you if they're unconscious and you head tilt chin lift them like you learn in CPR class, it should clear that airway. So, but never stick anything in their mouth. Um, that's the really basic mm-hmm. things that you want to do if someone's having a seizure. Of course, you always want to check if you don't know the person. If they're a stranger, uh, check for medical ID, uh, either um, necklace or bracelet, and that, that will identify them as a person with a seizure disorder, and that will give you additional information and numbers to call, and you'll be able to allow the first responders when they get on scene to say, hey, this person has a bracelet right mm-hmm. here that says they have epilepsy right. or a seizure disorder. Right. And there are lots other uh, 
if you don't see one of those bracelets, there are lots of other reasons that they could have be having a seizure. Sure. It could be um, a brain bleed like we've talked about. It could be um, blood sugar related issues mm-hmm. going on. Could be the it, drugs and alcohol. Could be drugs and alcohol. <laughs> could be uh, fever, especially right. in, in little kids. In kids. We see um, febrile seizures uh, a lot in right. that population of patients. So that, but the care is the same regardless. Right. In the epilepsy's, uh, informa- Epilepsy Foundation information, it says up to 70% of seizures have an unknown etiology mm-hmm. initially. And uh, until some, uh, you know, advanced testing is done, uh, you really may not know what caused that seizure. And um, uh, it's one of those things that has to be investigated unless you know their health history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that I would add to that is if uh, if you have the the presence of mind to think to do it, time that seizure, you know. And so when EMS personnel get there and they say, how long has this person been having a seizure? You're able to provide them with some information because just like you said, time seems to expand out and you'll be like, oh, they've been seasoned for 10 minutes and it's really only been, you know, three or four, you know, for something like that. Because that does tell us a lot if someone is not... um yeah, not ge- able to come out of that seizure. The, the general rule is five minutes. Anything mm-hmm. longer than five minutes is considered considered status epilepticus. Mm-hmm. And so, say that um, five times fast. Yeah, holding yeah. your tongue. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's it, it becomes an additional a medical emergency. Right. It really it really makes it. Uh, more important to get them to the hospital mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And after the seizure is over with, we can put them in something called a recovery position, which is what we do for a lot of different things. Exactly. Um, anytime we've done CPR and gotten a heartbeat back or right. gotten, uh, you know, got a choking victim back, and we put them in recovery position, which is what? What does recovery position recovery look like? Recovery position would be um, basically placing them on their left side, and we just generally tell everyone left side. Uh, right side is possible, but uh, we really want you on the left side. The main reason that in case you have a, a pregnant lady, you want to be able to get that baby off those mm-hmm. big veins and mm-hmm. big arteries. Um, get them on the left side. That way, if um, sometimes nausea and vomiting is involved in this, if you get them on that recovery position, the, uh, if they start vomiting, hopefully you can help uh, get it on out where they're not aspirating or choking on it. Um, and it's just good to get them in that position after the seizure stops, don't try to put them in it while they're having the seizure um, initially. Um, uh, but as soon as the seizure stops or starts deciding where you can get them on that side, that would be good. Um, um, just It's just good advice to do that. Right, just to have them there and, and safe because right. you're wanting them to be safe. And, and talk with them. That's one of the things that uh, many um, of people have said that, you know, well, they can't hear you. They don't know what's going on. And that's not necessarily true. I've had a friend uh, back uh, several years ago um, that had a seizure, and he was able to actually talk with to us uh, during the seizure. Now, he wasn't speaking in his normal voice where we could understand everything he said, but he repeated one word, mm-hmm. and it was hold me because he was standing up initially mm-hmm. when the seizure started, and he had the aura and knew what was about to happen. So, um, I mean, I... I was eyewitness of that, and I was one of them holding him. So I, I know that that's possible. It's not the everyday thing. That's a rare uh, anomaly. But each seizure is a little different. Even for the same person, each seizure may be a little different. Yeah, and that's, you know, I tell uh, our nursing students to do that. Anytime we have a patient in the hospital that has a seizure disorder, always ask them what their seizure looks like. And that's a good 
tip if you're working with folks, you know, if you do a daycare and there's a child with a seizure disorder, always ask that parent, what does their seizure look like? So that you can pick up on those subtle clues that something's coming on. Well, I have uh, one of my children had a seizure disorder as a child. And uh, what we would do would be the first day of school every year. We would take them pamphlets and everything from the uh, Mississippi Epilepsy Foundation. And we would do a short teaching thing of this is okay if he does this. Um, you don't have to call 911 if you see this. If you see this, call 911. Um, type in. So we did a mini educational thing with each teacher um, every year um, uh, with that. And uh, so they would know what to expect. And um, he he had nocturnal seizures, just seizures when he was asleep. And so uh, it really wasn't an issue for him at school, uh, mm-hmm. thank the Lord. But uh, we wanted, wanted to be prepared. We wanted to be prepared in case that did happen. And, and so if you have someone with a seizure disorder, uh, I definitely going to recommend the ID bracelets, the safety ID bracelets, and educate the people around you, hey, this is what it looks like. This is what you do if it does this. This is what you do if it does this. And it's just good basic information. It's And um, epilepsy, seizure disorders are nothing to be ashamed of. Um, there's really um, nothing you can do to probably prevent many of the seizures mm-hmm. that happen. And um, it's just a normal thing. It's good to allow um, um, the people you're going to be around to understand what's going to happen in case it happens. It's okay. It is okay. And we're talking first aid and response today. So now is the time to call if you want to talk with us. Our number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Now, how did I come up with this topic for today's show? Well, it came about because my oldest son is in Cub Scouts and he was working on his badges and one of his badge was first responder badge. And so we were having to go through all of these things and teach him, you know, what to do if you think somebody's having a heart attack what if they're having a stroke having a seizure all these types of different things and we got down to the cpr and i said caleb that's my oldest do you know how to do cpr and he said well i think it means i have to kiss you (laughs) and he had a horrified look upon his face (laughs) and so that's what a lot of folks think um, is that in order to do cpr that you have to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation but there is a new relatively new push out there for something called hands-only cpr and one of the reasons that it's being pushed is because folks were not doing cpr at all because they did not want to do mouth to mouth Um, but uh, hands only is better than nothing because you got to think I mean what's the purpose of CPR why do we push on people's chests we're trying to circulate the blood around and if we've witnessed someone in a collapse, then that oxygen that they have, that blood that they have on board is relatively oxygenated right now. So just go ahead and starting chest compressions is going to be able to help uh, that person much more than if we did nothing. So don't let uh, the thought of having to kiss somebody keep you from doing CPR if the need arises for that. So the two rules of hands only CPR is call 911 and then put your hand where? Where we put our hand? Middle of the chest. Middle of the chest. So you want to make sure kind of right in between the breasts um, is where you put that, kind of the heel of your hand, and push hard and push fast is what they tell you to do. Now, as healthcare providers, we count different things. You know, when we have an adult who, or even a child, we do, you know, 30 chest compressions, and then we do those breaths that we're talking about. But really, when you're out and about, and if you're going to do uh, CPR, just push hard and push fast. And why do we say push hard? 
Well, because of the internal structure of the body with the rib cage, you have to be able to press against that, the sternum, uh, to actually compress that heart to allow it to pump blood out yeah. and to refill. Yeah, also. it's recoil. So we're actually trying to kind of uh, mess with the pressures inside the chest cavity to get that heart to, to simulate a beat almost yeah. with that. Yeah, they, uh, the new uh, information wants you to do at least 100 to 120 beats um, per minute and it's uh that's pretty aggressive you really have to be pushing hard and fast yeah. to be able to get that in you do and there are some uh kind of ways to help with that you can uh, there's some music out there <laughs> that has uh that particular beats per minute associated with it and just happens to be staying alive um uh, so you can sing that song in your head as you compress along and that would be roughly the the right tempo for that right and and i've known uh, actually a couple of people that are or first responders that were um in a uh, situation where they didn't have a duty to respond but they were in a situation where someone collapsed Mm -hmm. and um, they started the hands only and were able to do that and that that's the actually song they were singing in their head Mm -hmm. uh to help them keep pace to what's going on right. so it's a, I know it sounds funny but if you're in that situation it can make a difference yeah it can and remember if if there's two people there remember to kind of swap out sure, because CPR um, if you've ever done it is incredibly tired and you don't really realize how tired you are until you stop but it is very very tiring and your compressions get less effective over time exactly. as you do that now we had an email call or email that came in that asked about the difference between child and adult CPR and they asked if there was a difference and there there are some differences there used to be a lot more differences um, with the number of compressions that we gave in relation to the number of breaths that we gave but now we're pretty even with 30 and 2 on that but what is different is how much pressure we use and which part of our body so in an adult you usually see the heel of the hand placed between the breast and the other hand on top um, for a child we don't need quite that much pressure so usually you'll just see one hand applied to the That's chest right. Uh, in, still, again, in between the breasts, you don't want to be pushing down over somebody's stomach because you may make them vomit um, or that little tip of the breastbone down there. You could do some damage to that as well. So in between the breastbone on that um, for an infant, it's even uh Dif- more different than that, it's kind of two uh, fingers or your thumbs in between uh, the, the breasts. They're pressing that down. So, um, but still, still hard and still fast. You're still trying to get that chest recoil to happen. Um, but that's the main, uh, the main difference with that is what type of uh, part of your hand you're going to use to be able to give um, the chest compressions associated with that. We've got a call from Bob and Jackson. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. How are you? Lovely, thank you. And you? I'm delightful. How can we help you today? Well, I've been hearing um, about a movement nationally to start training people in the use of tourniquets. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if this is uh, what your opinion of this is, and uh, is it something we're going to start seeing uh, locally? Well, that's one of the uh, $64,000 questions that's out there. Uh, currently, the training with tourniquets are going to be in combat or tactical situations. Um, we're not doing the layperson training with tourniquets currently. Um, and uh, as you said, there is a lot of talk nationally about that. Um, and I don't know of anyone here locally that's doing it except for combat or tactical uh, type of first aid, uh, tactical medic type training. Um, my opinion on it, uh, tourniquets save lives. We have plenty of evidence that from um, uh, from combat and from the tactical units that are out there. Um the main thing is, is 
you need training on it. Mm-hmm. There are certain do's and don'ts, and you want to make sure that you're qualified to do that because if it's used improperly, it can make things worse. Um, and so, but I've not know, uh, I do not know of anything locally where that training is taking place for the layperson. All right, Bob. To, uh, Hendersonville, uh, just outside of Nashville, uh-huh. to take it. It was uh, sponsored by the NAEMT, and it was a uh, tactical first responders course. And, uh, first that was one of the things they taught us. Yep. So I yep. carry two in my kit now, and it was, it's, uh, they're very sophisticated now, and the learning curve is not that steep. No, it's not. Um, they're they're not they're not that difficult to use. But um, again, you just want to have that very basic training on them. Uh, I'm like you. I have one with me at all times. If I don't have my pack with me, uh, I'll keep one in actually in my pocket um, because uh, you just never know when you're going to need one. Man, uh, I just don't I mean, want. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, heart attack training, um, heart resuscitation. Mm-hmm. No, that, what's the word? What am I searching for? <laughs> the heart it's a Monday. Teaches, teaches courses in uh, uh, responding to heart attacks and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Right. It seems that you could piggyback on those courses. I mean, uh, we even did the uh, uh, the uh, automatic um, defibrillator. Exactly. In the last course I took. So mm-hmm. it seems that would the Heart Association be the one to teach this or is this? That, needs to that, teach this. That, that's one of the things that's going to have to be answered if this mm-hmm. comes to the forefront uh, for mainstream uh, use is who's going to do the teaching, who's going to develop the course or class. Right. Um, and it's one of those things that just has to be worked out. Um, I don't have a, an opinion on who should do it. Um, it just needs to be um, streamlined mm-hmm. and um, taught. Yeah. So it's one of the things that I think we'll see more of as time goes on. But usually with any change, especially in the medical field, things don't change overnight. It usually takes a few years for things to settle in and enough people to agree that's what we need to do. All right, Bob, thank you so much for your call and sharing that information with us. And we have a few minutes left, so if you've got a question, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring So let's piggyback off of that tourniquets um, discussion because there are, let's talk about the two probably main things that you would see somebody apply a tourniquet for. That would be bleeding, and then what I've seen folks do is snake bite. So let's start with bleeding, first of all. So if you come upon someone who has cut themselves, you know, cut. I had a uh, lady walk in my clinic one time who had been chopping something and had cut the tip of her finger off. It was bleeding profusely. Any of those types of things, what do we do if, we, if we're not going to put a tourniquet on? Right. Standard thing is going to be direct pressure. Uh, you want to, if it's on an extremity, you want to elevate that above the heart um, uh, to help slow down the amount of blood that's going to that. And if you don't, uh, one of the tricks that I do when I teach uh, CERT classes, that's community emergency response teams, is just hold your hands up in the air, straight up, and you'll actually feel the blood start to drain uh, past your elbows and down to your shoulders. You'll feel tingling. And when you put your hands back down, you'll feel the blood actually return back. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of a quick demonstration of how keeping it above the level of the heart actually does make a difference in the controlling of bleeding. So definitely direct pressure first. Once you apply 
a bandage to something, you don't want to take it off. If it can, if that uh, gauze or whatever it is you're using fills up with blood, you just put more on top. Uh, because what it is is there's clotting factors in your blood, and they're getting down there trying to help. But if you keep taking them off every it's time, ripping you remove the little it, scab right, right off the top, and, and so it kind of defeats the purpose. So the idea is leave it on there. At some point, they're going to have to see an emergency room provider, and then they'll be able to look at right. it. But they have the people, the equipment, the knowledge to be able to work on all that uh, after they remove it. Uh, the other thing would be pressure points, and you don't hear a lot about them anymore. Uh, we do talk about them when we do uh, community uh, education. Um, the one in your arms, there's one in your legs, behind your knees, any, any, any place that you find a pulse, usually you can find a pressure point that'll go with that. All right, quickly, we're going to go to Tommy in Louisiana. Good morning, Tommy. Good morning. How can we help um, you? I know you're up against the clock, so I'm going to sum it up real quick. All right. Um, just to touch on it, because it was an experience with our firstborn mm-hmm. when she was eight months old. Uh, long story short, um, she was prescribed a drug by a doctor that didn't pay attention to what he was doing. She was given raglan at eight months old, and she was uh, having seizures. Mm-hmm. And that's something a lot of people need to look for, or when they do go to a doctor, you know, they may automatically look for epilepsy or something. Two, it's harder to see in an infant. It just happened my wife noticed that her eyes went white because they rolled back. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, we'd have never noticed in an infant that she had it. And two, let the doctors know whatever drugs or prescriptions that your baby or infant may be given. Um, we just happened to stumble into a doctor. We ran the Forest General, and automatically Dr. Robbins said, you know, this looks like a drug-induced seizure. How she managed to see that, I don't know, but I thank God to this day that she's seen it, and they admitted her for a week uh, to get everything out of her system and put her on IVs. But that is one thing that, you know, I try to tell everybody with babies, you know, please, you know, pay attention when you see something different or something that don't seem right. Mm -hmm. You know, most likely, you know, it it may be a seizure or something. But remember, you know, to let doctors know what, what drugs, what medications you may or may not be given thank you so much for that tommy you are exactly correct and that's medicines that's um, supplements that you may be taking herbal Mm -hmm. supplements anything like that of course we don't usually see that a lot in babies but anything you need to just go ahead and let us know so that we've got the full picture and we know what we can start eliminating things as to what might be causing it but as i've always said the parents are the experts in the care of their kiddos and they know when something is just not right something is different and just like you said seizures in uh, infants can be hard to to pick up on it can be that eye rolling back in the head it can be actually apnea is one thing that uh, we'll often see um, as a, with a baby, they just have pauses in breathing, and that can be associated with seizure disorder. Um, or reflux in infants will actually sometimes cause some seizure-like activity from that. So always keep an eye out and always talk with your health care provider. We've had a great day talking about first aid and response, and we had a lot of stuff that we didn't even get to, so that probably means I'll be having Dr. Mangum back on the show to handle all the rest of those questions about first aid and first responders. But I do want to thank Dr. Carl Mangum for being on the show today and thank all of our callers and listeners. And we'll be back next week with a new topic and a new guest. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio.
This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 